Hi, you're listening to the GamesIndustry.biz podcast. I'm Rebecca Valentine, and I'm joined today by... Matt Hadran. Brendan Sinclair. And Mike Williams. Hello, folks. That's Mike. Welcome, Mike. Uh, Mike is the reviews editor at our sister site, US Gamer. And Mike, you're also former GamesIndustry.biz, too. How long ago was that? Uh, I think that was almost eight years ago at this point. Oh, Jesus. What? Oh, the my fact, gosh. The fact that I was, I was actually still on the site when that happened makes me feel very old or maybe like I've been wasting my time for the last eight years. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, do you want to bring... Brendan was into as well, so... Yeah, so everything... <laughs> oh, my gosh. That, you know, I wasn't worried about all that stuff about wasting my time and stuff. But now, now that Matt's, you know, put words to it... I'm Brought it up. It's Friday oh afternoon, it's been a long week, you know. You're all so old. <laughs> wow! You didn't have to say it out loud. <laughs> Mike, do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, hello, folks. Uh, as I was brought up, I actually started on gamesindustry.biz long ago, before I moved over to the consumer side. Uh, on U.S. Gamer when we launched that and uh, went from staff writer to reviews editor. So I spend a lot of time playing a bunch of different games and writing about them. Uh, and uh, I feel like now a traitor to my B2B roots. <laughs> it's okay. We'll, we'll take I you back. I don't think you're a traitor. <laughs> you, you, made, you, made it, you made it out to the promised land where you actually get to play games part of your job again, you know, so, so that's no, that is that is a false promised land, Matt. I, I was about to say because Brendan was actually we 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 split when we started USG. We split uh, duties like we would alternate, uh, and then Brendan oh, yeah. Brendan saved himself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, but I say that because the reason I stopped. I think I made the decision to stop being a consumer journalist right when I was reviewing. I think Army of Two, the fortieth oh, day. Oh wow. And I was just like, what am I doing with my time? <laughs> I have to have this not be part of my life on a professional basis, you know. So I like that game. <laughs> but yeah, it's like, oh, there's a tiger. Do we set it free or do we not? And what are the yeah, ethical ramifications uh, of this? But the the health packs a tampon. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. Very unusual game. Different time. Very different time. Well, we are super happy to have Mike with us today and hopefully on many days on future episodes as a regular voice on this podcast to talk about the latest business headlines. Uh, this week, we're starting with, well, I guess like everything actually, in the sense that it was a really big week for game announcements. We had weekend showcases from Guerrilla Collective, PC Gaming Show, and Future Games Showcase, bits and bobs from IGN throughout the week. There was a Pokemon Showcase, which I'm really excited about, but probably can't find a business angle to talk about. Um, but then last night, EA Play. So did anybody in here besides me watch EA Play? I watched it because I was Thank covering you, it for work. <laughs> Same. I um, Okay, so... Brendan and Matt did not watch well, it. The, the timing. I, one one thing to point out about this is the timing Fair. was pretty hostile to anyone not in North America. Like, uh, yeah. in order to watch that, I would have had to start watching at midnight. I'm, as Rebecca previously mentioned, I'm pretty old, and I go to bed at like <laughs> 10 p.m. Like, I'm not I'm not staying up till 12 to watch EA talk about FIFA for 20 minutes. So, but, but but it did surprise me actually, just purely on that level, because you know it's in a digital world, you, you're presumably, and we we ourselves have, have done a digital event just recently, and you do think about how people in different time zones in your key markets are going to access stuff. 
And it seems like EA just didn't give two hoots about the whole of Europe. Yeah, I found that very surprising, considering presumably that they could have just as easily done it four hours earlier, and everyone in North America would still have been able to watch it quite comfortably. But yeah, yeah. A, a very, very surprising move on their part. Yeah, and I think that one was doubly weird too, because that showcase normally in a in a typical E3 where there is not a pandemic going on, uh, EA plays showcases usually on like Saturday or Sunday afternoon, like around noon Pacific time, which is a, a fairly reasonable time for pretty for most people to watch. So that was sort of a weird move to throw it in the middle of the week on like a Thursday night late. Yeah, I mean, for me, it was starting at 7 p.m., so, like, I had done the entire workday, and then it was just, like, and then I went grocery shopping and came back to watch it. Yeah, it was, it was odd. It was, I think it was one, it's, it's weird because it, it simultaneously felt like more, so last year, EA did not do something like this. They still had EA Play, but they, if I remember right, they did EA Play as, specifically as an event, right? Like, they did some gameplay trailers online, and then it was, like, this event that people could show up to, but they did not do a typical kind of conference where they have, like, an hour-long period where they show off a bunch of games, and they went back to that this year. This felt more like a traditional EA Play from a digital perspective, um, and it, it had... I think pretty much everything that I would expect out of an EA play. Like there were, there were a series of EA originals um, coming back. We had Hazelight Studios and Joseph Ferris re- reappearing. Um, we had, we had the typical EA sports block though. That was kind of interesting. Cause that was like shorter and less specific than the EA sports block usually is. Um, and then they had a few major title showcases. So yeah, it felt, it felt a little more traditional and kind of almost normal. Hmm. Was it, I mean, from the perspective of someone who, as previously mentioned, didn't really have time to watch it last night, and as a result, hasn't watched it even now because I just got up and started working, and I didn't really have the hour and a half I needed to to get through it. Uh, was it impressive? I mean, I, it's it's one thing just to see everything written down on a press release; it's, it's another to actually watch it and see the games and then kind of uh, look at the way they're presented. Uh, Mike, you, you said you covered it for US Gamer. What what was your impression of it as a as a showing from EA? It was pretty lackluster. I I honestly got the feeling that I would have skipped it this year entirely. Um because really? the first probably third was essentially EA going, yeah, we kind of screwed up before. We're coming back to Steam. We're bringing games to Switch. Uh like they didn't say we screwed up, but it was definitely like the the early push was Steam and Switch, and then Star Wars Squadrons, which they had already shown a trailer for, so this was a little bit more of a deep dive, and then uh, Joseph Ferris's studio Hayes Light, uh, like barely showed off a game. It was more like, hey, remember this guy? He's working on a game now. Uh, there was Lost and Random. And then the like latter third weren't really games. Like FIFA 21 and Madden 21 got like real brief teases as part of a larger EA Sports trailer. And then they vaguely mentioned Battlefield, what Bioware was working on, the Dragon Age, and um, Criterion taking over Need for Speed. And then ended on skate, which sounds so early that they don't, they like didn't even have like concept art. So like, yeah, so like the anchor was Star Wars Squadrons, which again, we had already seen 
twice already, so it was kind of like it was good to find more information, but that's not the kind of thing you build a digital conference event around. So I didn't see the the event as it was happening, but I've watched little bits of it, and I I saw on, on Twitter reactions, and my impression of it was a lot more positive, I think, than than yours as someone who actually sat through it. Um, people people that I saw were excited about, about squadrons, um, and Skate Four, obviously Dragon Age, and like even even just those three things having three projects that everyone is excited about or that lots of people are excited about coming out of an ea play seems like more than i remember them having in the past so maybe that like late pacific time uh frame might have helped them (laughs) if it if it has more people like me kind of only learning about the stuff secondhand but still kind of getting that that critical mass in their social media feed of like excitement about some ea stuff is that a- yeah, I I think, and I I don't want to I don't want to throw throw colleagues under the bus for for comments made in other groups, but um one, one <laughs> so, so, some well no this it's not that bad a comment okay. um but uh one one of our colleagues mentioned uh that this was actually a pretty good EA play by the standards of EA play. <laughs> Like, like, like it wasn't, it wasn't like mind blowing. It wasn't amazing, but it was actually, you know, better than, than the EA plays usually are. And I I kind of agree. I do think it was sort of interesting. You know, Mike, Mike mentioned that there was sort of a teaser of FIFA 21 and Madden 21. Um, It was, it was very weird because, so usually at EA plays, they have a whole big sports block and there's always the jokes on Twitter about, okay, time to go to sleep, time to make a sandwich because it's the sports block, which is neither here nor there. Like sports games are very popular and make EA a ton of money and are generally pretty good. Um, But it was weird that they decided to condense that down into sort of this thing that was like, it started like it was going to be focused on next gen. Like they were trying to show, oh, look how good these games are going to look in next gen. But I, we didn't really. I don't know that what we, what we saw wasn't gameplay, was it, Mike? Like it was just real, sort of like real briefly, like a lot of it. Yeah. Like it was interspersed with with real footage and motion graphics and stuff, and then yeah. like occasionally you'd be like, okay, so that's that's running on something. That's not what the game actually looks like. But you know when they they announced the brand new Maddens or the Fifas, those glamour shots that are clearly running on some sort of machine. Yeah. Yeah. It was just, it was very weird that they didn't, there was like no details whatsoever. Like I, when I was doing our write-up for it afterward, I had to like do some Googling to figure out, okay, wait, was that actually supposed to be Madden 21 and FIFA 21? What was that? I, I saw weird. those, um, some clips from that, that trailer pop up. And it's like, oh wow! So you can see like the the rain on the player's helmet. And that that looks really impressive. And then the first thing that I did next gen sweat. <laughs> well, and then the first thing that I did was I, I went back and I looked up the Madden NFL 06 E3 reveal trailer. And you know what? It it doesn't look too much different because they've been pulling this stuff every you know generation transition for a while now, like. Yeah, but is the fact that it's so brief, do you think, a reflection of the fact that EA knows it doesn't really have to spend an awful lot of time on a FIFA or a Madden? Like, you know, I, I, I love FIFA. I buy it every year, and I don't get more value out of any other single game purchase than FIFA. But 
I kind of barely need to be told it even exists, you know, and I certainly don't really need to to be taken into the details of what the new version does. In fact, one of the things I was chatting about with Chris, who probably would be on this podcast under normal circumstances, perhaps to excuse himself, um, was some of the, when you just look at the, the kind of detail they go into on the press release, I think one of the, one of the back of the box, you know, uh, features of this year's FIFA is something called off-ball humanization. Love. Excuse I me? love off-ball humanization. <laughs> I mean, how, how do you ever have FIFA without off-ball humanizations? What, what I'm asking right now. And also deferred lighting and rendering. Because that seems very so important. So I'm guessing too. off-ball humanization is when a player is not touching the ball, they actually still sort of react like real people. Mike, d- yeah, don't like, ruin this for us. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, but the thing is, like, I, I watch a lot of football, and and footballers when they're not on the ball do things like scratch their nether regions and like blow <laughs> mucus out of their noses and spit on the ground. Um, it's not something I think you need in FIFA. I, I, I but this is the thing. Like, what, what do you really show of FIFA 21 that, that really makes anyone more excited than they are just by knowing when it's coming? You know, they, well, Matt, they pretty I, much just flash up a release date and they'll still sell 30 million copies of the game. So, Matt, I agree with you. If this were any other year, if it was just like, oh, it's the next FIFA, but I think the fact that we have next gen coming, it, it's just, it's, it's really curious to me that either EA it's I, I I don't know what the thing was here like I don't know if the thing was either the EA was unwilling to show more next-gen stuff than they did or if we're still playing this weird game of chicken between Microsoft and Sony of who's gonna show a tiny little bit of the thing next yeah well I mean, uh, it, it would be interesting to see if maybe I think Chris wrote an article about this went around the GTA online um uh segment in the ps5 reveal that maybe we will be seeing some of these bigger third party games at the next xbox showing it's hard to sell but i think things like fifa and madden are slightly different if i remember the last console generation transition um properly like the first fifa that came out it was accompanied by this this idea that you don't really see the benefits of that technology in the first iteration it's more the one after because these games are made so quickly they just don't have time to react to it properly and actually there's an idea that the annualized sports stuff never truly makes proper use of the hardware because it's made on such an insanely tight schedule Uh, they can never really do it they're always using like code from 10 years ago because they just can't they just can't rip it up and start yeah and and Uh, you don't need a next-gen hype necessarily uh, because madden i believe comes out in august so it'll be well before the new consoles and then fifa 21 i think we're they have like another reveal planned for the same time around madden coming out yeah but it comes out in september normally, yeah i think so are, are we sure so, that's going to be the same way this year because some of these leagues like the nhl is talking about their next season starting in december or even january because their current season is being pushed back so much because of coronavirus are we going to see these annualized sports titles start to like change their their release dates to line up more with the start of the sports season or do they just stick to habit it's a good question because the next season rosters aren't going to be in place i mean at least for fifa so they're, they're finishing the premier league season now and la liga and stuff has started up they're not even they play the European Cup until all. Yeah, I think for Madden, they're going to try to get that out as soon as possible. 
because uh, I think EA realizes it sort of missed a little bit of the the road in not having a NASCAR game anymore because uh, NASCAR has been using the, I forget which game it is, uh, to run their little digital events on sports. And I think EA realizes that people are going to be hungry for any kind of sports and sports might not entirely uh, go off without a hitch and they might be able to catch a little bit of that heat um, by having like Madden out there and ready to go. Oh, that's a, a fascinating, terrifying gamble that those publishers are having to make on what happens next. So is um, Squadrons like EA's big, outside of those annualized games, is that its big play in it's, the holiday? It's a budget title, release? isn't it? Yeah, it, 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 it's clearly like uh, a, a game that they had a small team working on, and they told Game Informer that it's not even a live service game, so... Uh, like they're like we we are going to add stuff to it, but it's not being positioned as a live service. So it sounds like a small title that they just put out to fill space. Uh, but it works out because everyone wanted something like that. <laughs> well, they I think they've they've made pretty poor use of the Star Wars license so far. It sounds to me like they've they've had just as many false starts as they've actually had released products. Fallen Order kind of changed the, the view on that a little bit, but they've definitely had had a few dead ends there. But Laura Meal, we just uh, published an interview with her, actually, and she actually described... She actually just came straight out and said that Star Wars Squadrons was not on their roadmap, didn't come from market research. She, she's kind of making it sound like it's a good thing, but it just comes across as like we kind of pulled this one out of the air. Yeah, uh, I, there's an interview out there with someone. I think it was probably Game Informer. That was essentially... It was a bunch of people at Motive who liked um, the Battlefront 2 dogfighting game and built it out into something more and then pitched it. So, yeah. EA has been interesting in its uh, financial calls over the last year because they have been at least somewhat candid about what their release slate is for the next, for, for the upcoming like 12 months or so. Um, and they, like, I think in October or September of last year, they specifically said, okay, these are the things we're working on and here's the timeline for them. Um, and among them, their only mention of Star Wars was the next Star Wars game isn't going to be till like fiscal 20, whatever the next fiscal is, 22, I guess, it's or 21. I don't know, whatever the next fiscal year is. Like, it's, it's really far out. And so it surprised me when I started seeing all the Star Wars Squadron stuff because like they, they had been really clear multiple times that the next big Star Wars thing wasn't coming yet. But that makes sense if this is not, you know, the next big Star Wars thing. I've not watched it yet, as I've said, but it does. I just feel it just looks like a pretty flat product lineup to me. I don't know about the EA original stuff. I think part of it's because we had a chat in advance of EA Play. Uh, Chris, who talked to Laura and me, we've been told that there was a game in the lineup that was like this fan request that people have been making for the last decade. And we were kind of thinking about what it could be, like what what game could possibly be the thing that that that, that plays such a central role in the conference that fans have been asking for. And I came up, I mean, Escape Four and others on the on, on this podcast might have warmer feelings towards the Skate series. It's not like I dislike it; it's just not my thing. But I came up with maybe five suggestions, and they were all tremendously exciting. And so the fact that it wasn't like Burnout Paradise Two or Dragon Age Three was just, yeah. 
I just how do like, we still not have the Mass Effect trilogy? What is happening? And, and, and I think that was the other thing. Like so, like the the, the whole next gen section. Like there was no Burnout Paradise because Criterion is now the Need for Speed studio, and that was like a brief. Like here's a digital car, and the Bioware thing was just like here's a alien looking background, and Skate and like like I was saying like the announcement if you really cared about skate is more that it was happening it it's akin to when sony and them announced shinmu 3 back yeah, at that yeah. 1e3 presentation and then like you knew it wasn't coming for a long time so like skate 3 was literally just like two lead developers saying hey we're excited to be making another skate and then that was it like there was nothing else to that so if you didn't already have like a real love and desire for the skate series it's just empty <laughs> yeah <laughs> what they need to do is they need to get Aki back and working on a new def jam oh my god see and and see i tweeted afterwards i'm like i, I was i feel glad for everyone but i'm i'm ready for ea big to return which it never SSX. was. SSX. SSX, NBA Street, FIFA Street. That whole line was just great. Um, but no, it's it's never They have happen. the NBA Jam franchise now, don't they? I Didn't don't buy that? know. I don't know. Who released the, the tiny digital NBA Jam they released like a couple years ago? Yeah. I don't know if you do NBA Street if you've got NBA Jam. Latest release NBA Jam on Fire Edition for the Wii. Does that sound yeah, right? Yeah, it was like it was Wii PS3. Yeah, EA Sports. Oh, wow. Developed by EA Canada, published by EA Sports. That was in 2011, though. Mm, see, yeah, that's a long time ago. <laughs> I guess there really wasn't one that was more recent than that. Huh? We've gone over this. Don't, don't give You're Rebecca old. another opportunity to point it out. <laughs> Um, the the one thing that I do think that came that came out of it that was almost interesting to me until I actually thought about it for longer than five seconds um, is that EA is apparently bringing seven games to the Nintendo Switch in the next twelve months. So we know what two of those are: Burnout, Parad Burnout Paradise Remastered is out actually today on the day we're recording the podcast, I believe. Um, and then Apex Legends, that was kind of the big announcement, is that Apex Legends is coming to Switch, it's coming to Steam, it's getting cross-play in the fall um, when it releases on all those. So that's, that's actually pretty big news for Apex Legends. But that leaves five unknown Switch releases. And I, there, there's a, a wonderful running joke amongst me and some of my uh, fellow journalists who listen to uh, financial calls every three months about the, the, the person who is always on EA's financial calls and always asks in the investor Q&A why they won't bring Sims to the Switch. Which, no, um, a, would be a good fit though, right? It's, yeah, it would be a great be fit. At least Sims is going to be one of Do those. You think? It's probably going to be Sims, FIFA, Madden. Uh, yeah, I think. Well, because I the thing is, I I started thinking about it for longer than five seconds. I think okay, five titles left. It's gonna be it's gonna be FIFA and Madden. You're absolutely right. And then the remaining three, they're, like they're, those are definitely going to be EA originals, which is not a bad thing. But that's definitely going to be like they're probably. A way out makes like a lot of sense on the Switch, right? Like with the Joy Cons, that makes perfect sense. Um, it 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 feels I don't know. I I think there's an easy temptation to want that to be oh yeah Mass Effect trilogy or oh we're gonna get like a Dragon Age on the Switch or something like that. But but that's like not gonna happen. <laughs> I'm even yeah, skeptical I mean, I, about the Sims. I'm kind of wondering if they actually will do like, that. I would like you know I would like them. I, I guess I probably would play some of Mass Effect again if it was on the Switch. I think the one thing you can't expect from the Switch is 
any of EA's like frontline next gen stuff to arrive. But it's got. I, I think the problem with EA is that why on earth doesn't it have more on the Switch already? It's kind of it's kind of a strange thing to me. Uh, have to wait for it to sell like 50 million units before they finally get their act together and start releasing a lot of games for it. But yeah, if they release seven games on the Switch in the next 12 months, isn't that basically going to like double the amount of games that they have on the Switch or something? Uh, pretty much. Yeah, I think that's more than double because they released. I think they just released FIFA uh, mm-hmm. and maybe Unraveled mm-hmm. too. Yeah, and I think that that's all I can think of. Mm, is that that fee fay game on there? Maybe. I don't know. It feels like a Switch game. <laughs> yeah. See, we don't even know. Like... <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh, it, it, the fact that they avoided it for so long is is just so weird. And then the to try to return and make it a selling point, it's like the Steam thing. Like they were playing up yeah. for the first third. Like, oh, we're coming to Steam. It's like, I mean. Sure, that that is a selling point because you weren't on Steam, but you really sort of did yeah. that to yourself. Exactly, like, like we're coming back to Steam, we're coming to Switch. Just please, nobody analyze our reasons for not having done it sooner, because it's just kind of, it's just kind of embarrassing the reason why EA's games were, were not on Steam for such a long time. And it's and I, I can't imagine their reasoning for not supporting the Switch more really holds any water now either. Well, but, their um, reasoning for yeah. not supporting the Switch is because they did support the Wii U at the beginning. They had yeah, an unprecedented did. commitment to the Wii U, and they basically <laughs> just shoveled out a lot of ports in the first year, and then that was it. Then it just died. Um, Andrew Wilson's specific comment about it, too, was that, oh, well, we think that people like to play our game, who have Switches, like to play our games on other platforms. But you don't know, because your games aren't on the Switch, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and, well, yeah. Also, I have played the FIFA, FIFA on the Switch, and it's not... It's not good. So I think with EA, it's more, it's more a question of like finding... It, that's the odd thing, though, right? Like FIFA would, I guess, on some level, seem to be an obvious choice for the Switch just because it's so popular elsewhere. But actually, the hardware can't handle it very well. Um, it's just not that good an experience, and it's, it's far, far, far behind the console versions. But something like The Sims 4, I mean, just, just get it on there. The Sims 4, you know, the, the yeah. Sims actually are still so good, and it's, it was released six years ago. It's just a perfect platform for it. They could probably add on another few million million unit sales if they, they just get it on the Yeah, I mean, in, any of your last-gen, like, that's why everyone was just assuming that Mass Effect trilogy was a thing, because any of your last-gen stuff should run fine on the Switch. I mean like deep silver and them are making uh i assume decent money by just bringing old games to switch like oh here's another one uh so that it that ea hasn't uh, done mass effect uh, i don't I, I don't think they own knights of the old republic but uh dragon age or any of those like old gen games to the new platform yeah let's get, let's get dante's inferno on oh, there. No. let's get um, let's get army of two then they're going back to the discussion at the start let's get let's get ssx on there classic well yeah i mean this is yeah perfect but there we go marvel imperfects no no okay Okay. negative (laughs) Did, did anybody have anything else they wanted to add about any of the showcases this week Wait, what, what other showcases do we have this week? This week has been really long. I'm sorry. <laughs> there were the, the indie ones over the weekend, and then I don't really think there's anything remotely business-related to talk about Pokemon-wise. I just want to say, Pokemon Snap! New Pokemon Snap! <laughs> 
I think, I think you need to go on US Gamers Podcast. Yeah, for yeah. That. Um, <laughs> the only, probably if you're counting the extra weekends, the smart one about the Guerrilla Collective uh, over the weekend was that while the show was running, they also had a Steam Store hub. So as you were watching the games, you could just go over to Steam and wishlist any of them, which is a smart bit of business because some of the previous shows, like there'd be maybe like a handful of games. I'd be like, Oh, that's interesting. And then by the time the show was over, I'd forgotten it. Uh, it is a very smart bit of business. However, the next morning after all that was over, I op- I went because I, I it was three back to back. It was Guerrilla Collective PC gaming show, feature game showcase. That ended up being like four to five hours of nonstop games. Uh, after a while, I was very tired and I did not watch the entire back to back three shows. Um, and so the next morning, I opened up Steam because I remembered they had that hub and I was gonna go click on some stuff and it was all gone. Oh. I couldn't find it anywhere. So removing it the next day, terrible <laughs> choice. That's because that's odd because I think that's the model that um, an event called Ludo Naricon used. But actually, I think that was largely just a Steam based event. Like, it wasn't like a separate event that linked to Steam, but it all took place on Steam. And that's the model it used. You know, you can, you can watch stuff about these games, but then immediately click through to Steam and, and wishlist and stuff. But it was all basically about wishlisting on Steam, it wasn't, wasn't really about being an entity on, on its own. But apparently it's a model that has great returns for the developers involved. Yeah, I think it's it's a lot better than some of the previous showcases like IGN. No, I, there were a lot of showcases. The Wholesome one was probably the one that I, I just finished it after covering it. And I literally forgot all of the games that were involved. And, and that was it. I was like, oh, I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> <laughs> So the other pretty big news this week, um, news, I guess, was the review embargo lifting uh, from The Last of Us Part Two, um, which resulted in a lot of very interesting online discourse. Um, the thing that I think we noticed and we want to talk about, um, so I, I'm going to let Mike take the lead on this. I'm not somebody who is really into The Last of Us, but it definitely has seemed to me that over the course of the game's marketing and then due to some extremely restrictive review embargoes. Uh, the, the Last of Us Part Two appears to have been done at least some kind of disservice um, by the specific information and the amount of information that was allowed to be trickled out ahead of launch. Mike, what? tell, tell us about that. So there, uh, at least from, from what we've talked with the person who played, which was uh, our editor-in-chief, Kat Bailey, there are some more interesting meteor story moments in the latter half of the game and also some problems uh, that reviewers were essentially forbidden from talking about. And so there's been a lot of discussion online about the fact that uh, fans, reviewers, uh, felt that it was kind of uh, for a game that Sony and Naughty Dog were pitching as so meaningful being completely unable to talk about the full scope of the game uh, and also uh, in in some partic- particulars like warn people about uh, uh, some things that would probably turn them off 
are also like let people know that some of the leaks because uh the last of us 2 was sort of uh like two weeks ago rife with a full leak uh let people know that some of those actually weren't entirely correct so there's just a a weird mist that they put over that last half of the game uh nominally for spoiler purposes but I, I think it's weird for me because I have uh, I also follow films a lot, and uh, when you have something that's really artistic and meaningful, like uh, I've been reading reviews and discourse around Spike Lee's uh, *Defy Bloods*, which is on Netflix, and those reviews and critiques are allowed to talk about the full scope of the movie, uh, and I, I think that's sort of important uh, from at least a critique point of view but also from a uh, as a product review like hey letting you know uh that towards the end maybe the game entirely breaks down because of this storage choice i think would be useful uh but they they decided not to and that's not entirely new for sony uh having gone through probably their last couple of embargoes they seem very sensitive over story spoilers for the latter parts like they are very stringent on you can talk about the game up until this point but after that point you can't show anything you can't talk about it you can't mention that it exists um which i i think is fine in some cases but i think it's a mistake overall i i know god of war spider-man both had that same very stringent uh review embargoes and the last of us part two i think the the problem there was really sort of a uh you can't talk about something that's meant to be uh sort of meaningful and artistic if you can't talk about the entire thing yeah i can i just want to uh clarify something you mentioned earlier mike i mean i and i'm not i want to clarify whether or not i got the, the right or wrong impression were you, were you suggesting that there's been in the discourse the idea that some of these uh, restrictions, what people could talk about, were because Sony was concerned with people talking about details that might put some people off the game? Uh, yes. In... Because obviously, if it, if it was the case with Spider-Man and God of War, those didn't have those elements, right? But they had the same restrictions. So do, do, what, what, in your opinion, do you think it is with the last of us but is it that sensitivity or is it just this is just sony's way a bit of both i i think maybe some sensitivity um but that's why i also brought up the previous review embargoes and that sony seems particularly um focused on not spoiling their games probably because they're single player experiences and they they want people to uh not be spoiled by them which uh is something that you know is occasionally a problem in other mediums or with other games but um in this case i think it was a a real problem because specifically like god of war it was like oh hey here's the uh, a new uh, a weapon coming back from the previous game which is a fairly big spoiler but not like a uh, meaningful in sort of real world impact whereas there are some moments in the last of us part two 
in the latter part of the game that are sort of intertwined with uh, things that are happening in, in, in our real world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've been reading a lot around this game, actually, and, and by film critics specifically, because I was, I was interested in that particular, the way that a game like The Last of Us Part 2 translates to someone who actually is used to critiquing a more sophisticated narrative medium than video games are. And that's not a slight on video games. That I actually think, I, I back in my reviewing days, I came across a Metal Gear Solid 4 is the one that stands out most for me. The, the, the embargo on that was unbelievably strict. I think you were only allowed to talk about the events of like two out of 12 chapters or something like that because they were so worried about spoilers. Yeah, so I just, just to finish my thought, but I, I've always felt that it is tied to a relatively um the industry has a fairly immature relationship to its own products in a lot of ways they they lack the, the faith of their own convictions um i suppose they they want they want last of us 2 to be considered as art but they but they treat it as if it's um and our last of us 2 may not be the perfect example because as you say mike has these elements that that potentially are are being um, kept from people for other reasons but say like a god of war type game i mean you know, they're treating it like it's a it's a airport mystery thriller that can be completely ruined by, by someone having a glance at the last page. It's a, it's a pretty immature way to treat your own your own entertainment medium. I think. Yeah. So, so you brought up Metal Gear Solid there, and that's sort of a good example. Cat uh, brought it up in talking about the violence of uh, the Last of Us Part Two. Metal Gear Solid Five Ground Zeroes ends with a moment involving a character Paz that is fairly repellent to some people and it, and and in the case that that moment comes towards the end of the game and assuming like a sony style embargo that's a moment that really impacts how you feel about that game that you couldn't talk about and so that's those are the kinds of things that you sort of like, oh, okay, yeah, I, I would have liked to be able to tell someone about that. Or in, in terms of critical discourse, like I would have liked to have been able to sort of uh, written more deeply about that event or pondered why it was there or anything like that. But those are the things that we sort of can't do until, well, now. It's also sort of exhausting too, because, you know, just looking at like, you know, you know, I guess the film industry is sort of, sort of another example um, they reviewers who review films still who, who don't have these wildly the same kind of wildly restrictive embargoes um, that we have in games um, they still manage to write reviews where they don't just give the ending away right. for everybody like like they're like they're responsible people they they know that people want the people who read them want to come read their reviews and they want to gain an understanding of what they are going into and whether they're going to like it or not but they don't want everything given away for them and and they respect that and I think that the the vast majority of game critics would be are, are responsible people who would be who would do very similar and who would talk about the things that were important to talk about without just get like you you know, writing a summary of the entire plot. Um, I I kind of feel like there's at least a tendency to sort of treat the games industry with like these weird, untrusting kid gloves about it, right? But then but then we also have situations where somebody, I can't remember who, somebody posted um, when they got the game for review, like I think they were allowed to post like a screenshot of just, just the title screen with like new game continue or whatever on it. And all it is is like this boat. And a bunch of people lost their <laughs> minds because they had a boat. There's a boat in this game? Oh, my 
have been spoiled. And it's, it's maddening. Like, what is wrong? But that's the thing. What? I do think it's something of a mistake just to see it being something visited on games. There is a part of gamer culture which, which lead, bleeds into this, I think. Um, and it's weird because if you do follow films, like... Well, the, one of the guys that I, that I was really interested to read about is a guy called David Ehrlich. Uh, he write, he's a film critic for IndieWire. Um, when you follow these kind of professional film critics, like they'll be writing about big films a year ahead of time when they see them at a film festival, Telluride, Toronto, whatever it might be. And they'll talk about them in a detail that you could never, ever do with a video, even two days before it releases. Because the film industry has belief that it's important you know, to discuss. I'm not talking, Mark, I'm not talking, you know, the Avengers Endgame or anything like that, of course, but The Last of Us is going for something different, as Mike said. It, it's going for a kind of resonance with with things that are going on in the world. And it is it's exhausting. And to quote, actually, I, David Ehrlich talked about this in a, t- uh, in a tweet. He said, this film critic has just read and signed his first video game embargo. And holy crap, is this a different ball of wax? I don't think I can tell you which game it is because I think they'll kill the hostages. <laughs> so, like you're saying, Matt, not for Avengers Endgame, right? Because for Avengers Endgame, um, I don't, I'm not sure if they specifically had those kind of embargoes, but like around any kind of uh, fandom, there is still that that really secretive, afraid of spoilers um culture that prioritizes the entertainment as a product first and an experience that they want to surprise people with and as a piece of art to be critically dissected and have people search for meaning for like that's a distant second that is, that is not really on the radar of, of you know, what they're concerned about and in the games industry the big publishers the AAA companies they they basically just make avengers endgame and the the yeah. people that are actually trying to put out the the sort of like film festival circuit titles it's generally going to be in the indie scene and i've i don't know if i've ever even heard of an indie developer um putting an embargo on a game like i'm not familiar with any but i'm not really I'm, I'm trying to think I'm, i i was like was there any for like annapurna or anything and I don't think so. Like, uh, I think the last game I can think of from Annapurna was If Found. Uh, and when, yeah, when they sent over the code, I'm, I'm looking, yeah, it, uh, there's no, like, you can't talk about this or that. They just sent over a code and let us know what the review embargo was. Yeah, I think every so often, back when I was doing reviews, I'd get something from a smaller developer that would just have a very polite little note, something like, please don't reveal that the main villain is actually this right. person like a very very like a very very specific request like for a, tw- a plot twist or something that was very easy to right honor. And, and and those are generally like gentlemen's agreements like please don't but if you do we certainly can't stop you whereas uh some of these probably the first one that really hit me like that was i think batman arkham knight where I had like a full NDA, like you can't talk about this, you can't talk about this, you can't talk about this, no screenshots or video of this. Uh, and I think that was the first one that I just like sort of looked and I was like, really? Uh, okay, I, I mean, I guess, but 
Uh, I mean, we signed the uh, NDA and I did the review, but that was probably the very first one uh, as reviews editor or staff writer at US Gamer that I was kind of like, okay, this is a little little odd. And then Sony sort of trended in that direction uh, over time. Yeah. This is the one that I remember being really, really bad was back when I did reviews was uh, Pokemon Omega Ruby and Alpha Sapphire, which I think was especially egregious. Um, it, it was I mean, it, it was it was all the things you expect. Like you can't there's a huge list of Pokemon that you couldn't reveal were in the game. You couldn't talk about anything after a certain point. You could, couldn't talk about this character or that character, all this other stuff, which was incredible because it was a remake. It was a remake of an existing game. Um, it's it, it, it was just wild to me that I could not talk about all these things that exist in the original yeah, so that's, that's, game. Uh, it, that's it, happening now, too, with Persona 4 Golden. Uh, Atlas just put out uh, a statement on Twitter today like being like, hey, don't don't talk about like the end or anything because, uh, to acknowledge, yeah, it's a game that a lot of people probably have never uh, played because it was trapped on the PlayStation Vita for years. Uh, but it's just weird because it's out. Like you can Google the ending of Persona 4 Arena, uh, Persona 4 Golden right now. So putting out any sort of statement is kind of like, okay, I, I, I guess, sure. I, I think this is all kind of dancing around the the idea that for for me, anyways, I look at it and I see that like fandom and fan culture is really twisted and horrible and <laughs> just kind of breeds breeds a lot of toxicity in in the world and things like this that treat the details of you know a game's plot or a little surprise that some fans will like as like sacrosanct oh my gosh you can't possibly tell anyone this because it is so important feeds into the 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 whole culture of like oh my gosh someone dared to say that the, the thing that i like is bad so now here come the death threats or the just weird bizarre behavior you get from like you know the the rick and morty szechuan sauce riots oh yes <laughs> They're not quite riots, but still, just like you, you see this like really just irrational behavior all across the board of people just taking the entertainment that they consume way too seriously. It's like a life and death kind of situation, and and just throwing so much harm into the world and, and threats and, and brigading people over it. And it's because they take it too seriously, and they take it too seriously. Because the, the people making this stuff take it too seriously. Because they're told to take it seriously. Because this entire industry is like, yes, taking it seriously is right and good. And the fans are so passionate. And everything that we do is for you. And if you don't enjoy <laughs> our AAA blockbuster Hollywood holiday tentpole release, then we have failed and you have our deepest sympathies and we will, we will lash ourselves 40 times. And it's just like this really twisted relationship, I think between the the consumers and the creators and i i'm sorry to get off on a tangent there but no no I, I, it's interesting because i i feel like a lot of this i i think that's absolutely true the the degree of you know for example like the i signing an nda to like legally tie you to not talking about the end of a spider-man video game seems like completely ridiculous to me it speaks directly to the kind of culture that Brendan is talking about. 
But I think the, the thing we're talking about now, it, it directly addresses kind of what an unusual game The Last of Us 2 is. Because when that same approach is applied to The Last of Us 2, it feels egregious and kind of anti-art and and stifling uh, the, the kind of conversation that should be allowed to happen around a game that's trying to do this this many so th- th- this much like not everybody agrees it does it well but you know it's at least something to talk about but when you think about it while there are a lot of hollywood movies right so not little independent films or anything but movies with stars with loads of money spent on them Last year, you know, I saw Ad Astra that was kind of like that, The Irishman, Marriage Story, whatever it might be, uh, Little Women. Like, the video video games don't often try and do that kind of thing. The Last of Us is an example of a game really trying to grapple with big ideas, big themes, and resonate with the world in a way that the vast majority of video games never do. So when you apply this kind of spoiler culture, which is really a much more commonly found in the kind of the comic book mega blockbuster side of the of the of the film industry but the film industry has a lot more of like an intellectual side to it even at that very top level and so the last of us kind of stands out in that regard because like you say mike there there are things in the last of us which sort of demand to be talked about i haven't played it but you read enough reviews i did did one of our critical consensus pieces where i read about 15 different reviews and every single one of them said like there's stuff in here that we just really want to be able to discuss and describe and talk about our things to. We're not allowed, and and there aren't that many games that, that demand that kind of. Yeah, and then that was kind of the dodge there. When you, if you're reading a bunch of reviews, uh, that you you sort of get that same feeling, like you're like, what is in there that that is like that important that they can't talk about it because everyone had to talk around it, uh, and. I, I I just think that's that's such a weird moment, and it, where uh, again as opposed to like God of War, where the the moment was like, oh hey, here's a weapon from previous God of War. It's like okay, like yes, for God of War fans, that that's probably a powerful, meaningful moment, but not talking about it isn't necessarily like a point of the work itself like and i i feel part of what is missing in the last of us conversation uh speaking to a bunch of different people who have played it and reviewed it is the fact that it's part of what happens in that part they can't talk about is meaningful to the work itself i also think that there's potential for these kinds of things to be directly harmful like like in a very very clear way um, and I, I get, I guess I am going to talk very vaguely around what some people would construe as spoilers for The Last of Us 2, so sorry about that, if that's something you care about. Um, but th- there are two things that I have noticed. One is that in a trailer, I believe it was last year's trailer, or I think it was, I think it was last year's trailer for The Last of Us Part 2, um, the, the trailer very much gave the impression that the game was going to fridge um, one of its gay characters, um, basically kill off Ellie's um, female love interest to give her sort of this motivation for this revenge story. Um, that That's exactly that's what it looked like. That's what the trailer, it did, it did the whole thing and it was set up to look like that. My understanding is that it doesn't actually do that. 
Um, and I, I don't know what it does instead or how, how that works, but I think that the fact that that was sort of the market, I think that even if, even if the game doesn't specifically fridge its gaze, like I think that the fact that it was used in the marketing and then no one was allowed, one, that it was used in the marketing to begin with to look like that. And then two, the fact that no one was really allowed to talk about whether that was true or not, um, in their reviews what is, is like actively harmful and not good. Um, and then the other thing that I have noticed um, some people talking about is there there is a situation with a character who is transgender in the game um, that some people have some feelings about. And I, I have not played the game. I have not watched these scenes. I have seen different people have differing opinions on it. But my impression of it is that it's the kind of thing that at the, at the very minimum, you know, reviewers should be able to say, there is the situation. Here are some of the here's some of the kinds of content you will run into. It, basically, kind of like a, almost a content warning in a review to be like you know just be aware that this is something that you're going to come across if you play this game. And the fact that no one was able to talk about that in the review again is potentially harmful yeah. to people. And I I don't think that's okay. that's that's sounds like a marketing uh, plan to me. Is they don't want when the game comes out they don't want the discourse to be about the you know the the treatment of the, the the gay characters in the game or the the trans character they don't want the the discourse to be about that they want the discourse to be about oh my gosh you guys this is so violent and unremittingly bleak and gory and you kill all kinds of stuff and they they look at that and they say okay well that yeah people will buy that they they won't buy what they think is you know the gay trans character game um, and that might be a really like cynical view of the way Sony's marketing is looking at this. But when you put these kind of embargoes on there and, and when you have a uh, development team that is apparently trying to, you know, diversify the, the content and the themes that it's dealing with, and then what you wind up marketing on is entirely the violence of it, that's, that's a problem. Yeah, we can't we can't talk honestly and candidly about how we deal with gender and sexuality in this game. But hey, let's market our game on the fact that you can murder brutally a dog. Like, yeah. Well, one of the striking things when I put together the critical consensus, and I made mention of this in the intro to the piece. I, I read a lot of reviews, and you know, when you do these critical consensus pieces, you'll read like a dozen reviews from like noted, respected sources such as US Gamer like you guys are in there, um, you, you get used to seeing people kind of talk about specific parts of the game. So the size of the game world, the graphics, the visual fidelity, all this kind of stuff. And one of the things that was really, really striking about um, Last of Us particularly was the fact that nobody really did that, um, that everybody really talked about the themes, the messages, the story, the... The, the character development, the embargo, but real, realistically, the, the kind of stuff that, that dominates most reviews didn't really play a part. You got, you got the sense that the critical community really wanted to engage with this in the way that, you know, the, the game itself seems to demand to be engaged with and not engage with it like a collection of disparate qualities, which is what a lot of games are reviewed like. And I, I think that kind of is the difference between like a review, which is effectively a marketing tool, buy this game, don't buy this game, and, and a critique or a piece of criticism. Um, I think in, we come back to film again and again, but film has a, a lot longer tradition of criticism and not just reviews. Whereas when I first became a journalist, it really wasn't very much games criticism to speak of. 
that's that's something that's really kind of grown up and exploded in the last 10 years or so. Um, but I think we're getting more and more games to, to, to kind of demand it and justify it. And then The Last of Us 2 is a sign that the AAA end of the business also maybe wants to start making games that kind of have that sort of heft. But as you say, these kinds of restrictions around what you can and can't say just, just damage that and, and undermine it as a, as a pursuit. We're going we're gonna to wrap it up here. Uh, you can always go back and listen to previous episodes of this podcast on all good podcasting platforms. Once you're on that good podcasting platform, consider subscribing so it'll let you know whenever another episode appears. And you can and should get your daily dose of news and insight into the world behind games at gamesindustry.biz. Music